the, yeah, the problem is that we have a system which is based on racism. You cannot reform racism out of the system. It's not possible because it is the system. That's the logic of it. And so anytime you try to reform it, you'll just find that it just regenerates problems again and again and again. So the fact that I'm a black professor does not mean anything really, other than to me. Hello and welcome to Unheard Confessions. My name is Giles Fraser and this is the podcast in which we talk to interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and try and sort of get at what they're all on about. Um, and with me today is the very interesting Professor Kahinda Andrews, who's just um, published uh, a new book called Back to Black, and he's the Professor of Black Studies at the University of Birmingham. Kahinda, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, very nice. Um what we normally do is just start by asking you to say a little bit about your background and where you come from and uh, your sort of home in which you were brought up and that sort of thing. Maybe you'd start by saying something about your parents or that sort of thing. Um, I think it's, it's pretty boring probably, but I will give it a go. <laughs> um, so my dad uh, came from Jamaica when he was about 14. Uh, my mum was actually born in the UK uh, in Manchester and moved down to Birmingham when she was in her 20s, I think. Uh, it's one of those odd things when people say that I hate Britain and, um, and I'm not British and go, go go home. I mean, I was born and raised uh, in the city of Birmingham. I still live around the corner from where I grew up. Uh, it's a very, what we call a diverse area, which means there's not many white people, basically. Answorth <laughs> Wood. And so I, I grew up um, as all right, I guess. Like, family was all right. We... I guess lower, upper working class, that kind of, that kind of, you never really struggled, never had, we never had lots of money, but we were okay. Uh, but just one generation removed from pretty steep poverty, I think, on both of mum and dad's side. What did your, um, what did your mum and dad do? Uh, so my dad um, was, he started, he started off in community work. So what was the experience of many Caribbean migrants was that he came and, you know, people came to the country thinking they were going to get, it's great, like, you know, in the, in the Caribbean, you've got this, it's Britain, it's the mother country, you're going to get this great education. But what they actually found was they, the kind of racism that even I can't really imagine. And he was one of that generation that came out of school with no qualifications whatsoever. Uh, it was a welder for about seven years, I think. And then he went into community work, started the Harambee organisation in Birmingham, which used to run a hostel, a bookshop, and eventually a nursery. And then eventually he got through, through that community work, he got into a graduate scheme at Warwick University and became a lawyer. Oh, wow. So wow, I had no wow. qualifications from school. Wow. I ended up being a lawyer and was a lawyer for, I don't know, until just recently, he just retired uh, in criminal law. Was he, with the experience of coming here when he was 14, did you say? Yeah. Was he, was he, did he come from one of those families that was incredibly patriotic and had sort of like, uh, sort of like the Queen and yeah, all that everybody, sort of stuff? Everybody, that, my grandmother's generation, they're all, they're all a bit like that. My grandmother, not so, so much, but, you know, they all came thinking they were going to get this wonderful British experience and found out it was the uh, British nightmare, I think <laughs> what you can call it. Uh, my mum was, was born here, but her dad was uh, Jamaican as well. He, he was in the army, armed forces. Again, something we typically think about. I've had a lot of criticism recently about some comments I made about um, war crimes committed by the British during the Second World War. And again, the, the assumption is that I have nothing to do with this history. I regularly told I should be grateful to white people for saving me in the war. I have to remind them that all of my family, both black and white, uh, had been involved in the war effort, the Caribbean, as much as anybody here. Uh, so that's how my granddad came to uh, the UK, uh, married my grandmother, who's white, Mancunian. Um, but she's probably been the most political of that generation. She went. She was at the 
fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester. What, the 1945? Yeah, the 45. The, the famous 1945 yeah, yeah, one? my grandmother was there. Well, um, that's quite a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, she got a letter from... Robert Mugabe, he was also there, but people have kind of written him him out of the history. Right, right, right. I didn't know that. Well, she's got a letter from Mugabe because they had a dance or something. So that's my my (laughs) You didn't have a romantic relationship with Robert Mugabe. That is quite a confession. I think he just danced. I don't think there was anything. (laughs) Okay, wow. So it was quite a a politicised family that you you grew up in then. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, by the time I was born, my dad heavily involved in politics. My mum... Uh, when she graduated from Sheffield University, she was the first. Was she the first? I think she was the first to graduate from university um, in her family. And she worked for the Race Relations Board for about 30 years, became the CR Commission for Racial Equality. Uh, my mum and my dad met in that. My dad was um grassroots activist. My mum was working for the Race Relations Board. And that's actually how they met. So it was all politics from the start. And I've got a really massive collection of books, uh, which are just all these, everything that, in my book that you read in my book pretty much came from the book. So you were reading this when you were quite young then, presumably? Yeah, like when you were at school. Certainly teenage, certainly teenage years. I mean, I think because you don't learn any of this stuff in the schools, no. if you don't get it somewhere else, you're not going to get it. And eventually I turned to the bookcase, which again was really quite substantial and just started picking up. Uh, I think the first book was uh, Stokely Carmichael, who became Kwame Touré, uh, a book called uh, From pa- from Black Power to Pan-Africanism, Stokely Speaks. Right, right, right. And I right. only read it because he, he had a really silly cover. Uh, he had a, it's him with a little big, afro, big, big afro glasses and he's glasses. Got, gone over his head and he sounded, it looked ridiculous. That's why I picked it up, but, but then loved it. The book was, was totally life-changing. And I started reading the rest. But we'll talk own. about Pan-Africanism in a yeah. minute because that's quite an interesting thing. So forth. let's just get the let's get the biography <laughs> slightly. Mm-hmm. And then you went from where did you go to school? You went to school in just local school in Brum. Uh, yeah, so I went to school, uh, local school, around the corner for primary. My mum uh, and dad insisted I didn't go to a Birmingham school. Birmingham schools were pretty terrible back in the day. Um, they've improved a bit now. So I went to a school on the edges. Which actually ended up being just as bad, like, really, like, yeah. if you actually look at the, the gra- I think when I graduated, well, graduates, left schools, 25% of people got 5 eight star, G's, GCSE, right. C, A to right. C, GCSE, something like that. But the average for Birmingham was like 20%. It was a really, right. people really forget, like, the Tories proper ran down schools. It was terrible back in the day. And it's, it's improved. Yeah, it's improved. In and then you went on to uni. Yeah. And then I went to university, um, to University of Bath or Bath. Okay, I'm supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> it depends whether you're in the north or not. <laughs> I say Bath University okay. of Bath to okay. do psychology because my mom wouldn't let me do sociology. In fact, I, uh-huh. I'm still not sure she's 100 percent proud. Um, like I'm a professor, but so it's like, not a proper really, subject, is it? Why is, that, is that what she thinks? She's not a proper subject. It's just, and for psychology, is a proper subject. I, I know pseudoscience. Who knew? <laughs> And then you presume you did this sort of like standard academic thing and PhDs and all that sort of uh, thing. Yeah, so I went to I went to the uni- the reason I went to University of Bath was because they had a year abroad. So I went to Boston for a year. So I spent a whole year, third year, doing a, in Boston, doing Children's Hospital Boston, and working in black psychology actually. So that right. if it wasn't for that, I would not have stayed in university. University is a terrible experience. If you if you're black, generally it's a bad experience just because. It's so, particularly at a place like Bath, where there's like no black people. Like there was, it was really white, and then the city's really white. It was just a different experience. Um, but just it's really elite, so I wouldn't have stayed other than finding black psychology. Like that's when I found just a different 
way to think and be about things. That's when I said, okay, I want to stay and do. And you've talked about university experience quite a lot, haven't you? Because the mm-hmm. whole the whole idea of the sort of whole infrastructure, the sort of cultural architecture, I guess, of the university is extremely white and yeah. celebrates sort of white power, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, at a staff level, certainly. So if you look at the stats, about 1% of all academic staff in the UK are black. Um, if you, as you go higher up, it gets worse. So out of 19,000 professors, there's 120 black professors, I think, maybe 121, because I've got my professor recently. Um, but then for other groups, it's even worse. I think there's about 20 Bangladeshi professors, something like that. And then when you go into management, forget about it, there's nobody. I mean, I think I am the most senior black person at my university, full stop. And is there something it's about great. the university experience that produces this result? Yeah, so I think the, then you look at everything the university does and the way that it behaves, it behaves in a way it would say, oh, these aren't racist decisions, but when all the decision makers are white, that is important because it actually frames what happens. And then if you look at the curriculum, certainly, I mean, I, I never learned, I had a whole psychology degree, never learned anything about from people that wasn't, wasn't white European. Uh, I only found black psychology because I went to America where there was always black psychology. Had I not done that, I would have assumed that psychology was just white European. And it really is alienating. Like you're basically being told that you can't think. That's what that, and it's an alienating experience doing that work, 100%. And then as well as the curriculum, you just got the, the whole way the university is built, the way the support structures are built for it. It kind of is designed for middle class mm. students. No, just white students, middle class students in general. And that just really does it alienates a lot of people. So it's a class thing as well as a race thing. Yeah, if you look at, so like for example, University of Bath, I, I, I enjoyed it, it was all right, but you had to have money, you had to you stay on campus, you had to have certain things. To, to really enjoy it, you kind of have to have some some money. Without that, it would be really, 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 really difficult. And I had, people had to get in loads of debt to kind of chase that. And, and it's, So it's, there's a many layers to it, but certainly it's extru- extremely um, exclusionary and problematic. And um. The curriculum, of course, is one of the things that, that's being opened up for discussion now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, some of the things that you've been saying about the Enlightenment, <laughs> because um, the, the Enlightenment is, you know, has a sort of very high cultural standing at the moment yeah. and so forth. And everybody thinks, you know, you can't say a word about the Enlightenment. Why is that? But it seems to be the case. But you're one of the few people yeah. who actually... Uh, it, you know, it's quite critical about the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment legacy. Well, I mean, it is, I think I said before, it's, it's white identity politics. I mean, yeah. Enlightenment, I, I'd, it's really surprising to me because I, I was on Newsnight a while ago and uh, said Immanuel Kant was racist. And this caused a massive, like, everybody, oh, are you talking about his racism? If you just look at any, like, most of, actually, I'd say probably the majority of things that Kant wrote were actually, like, explicitly, openly, overtly racist. Um, there's these few tomes like the Critique of Pure Reason, which have that kind of Western universal nonsense to them. But the rest of his body of work is really about who who can think and who can't think. Actually, he basically, has a map of the world that says Africans are the stupidest and cannot think. And then you get to you get to Asia, it's a bit more enlightened. Do you know? You I mean, Europe, I did a philosophy degree, and I studied Kant, and <laughs> I studied the Critique of Pure Reason. And for the whole of my time, I did quite a lot of. I think I think yeah. I did a, a whole term on Kant. Yeah. Okay, uh, I never. I mean, this this says something about me not reading around the subject, yeah. but also says something about what I'm being taught. Yeah. I never knew any of that. that is I mean, I never knew that. It's, it, and it is a and you're right. selective. It's a really selective teaching. And really, if you look at Western rationality, this idea that it's universal, it's it's it's, it's, well, it's problematic for two ways. One, the Enlightenment, the 
why I say it's white identity politics, because the idea of enlightenment, not Europe's caught up or Europe has finally got knowledge or rationality. It really is this idea that knowledge spreads out of Europe and spreads to the rest of the world, so the enlightenment. But really, if you look at that before the enlightenment, the only part of the world that was in a dark age was Europe. I mean, and if you actually look at where they got the knowledge that's based scientific rationality from, it's India, it's the Middle East, it's Africa, it's China. And so... That the core so repackage claim. all of this <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. and then and then say that we're the light to the rest <laughs> yeah, of the world exactly which is which is madness right but is but is there in something intrinsically racist about the idea of universal reason I I don't necessarily think there is in terms of like is there universal reason no I think with the Enlightenment project yes actually if you look at the basis of it what it was used for how like for example. The defense of Kant and, and universal reason appears to be, well, look at the ideas, it's really, really, really good. But these ideas justify slavery and colonialism. So actually, in practice, at the time, the, these ideas were used to further racial inequality. That's what they were there for. So you can't take it out of You were, were the ones taking it out of context by saying, well, no, look, these are great ideas. Actually, they're a product of empire, and they need to be taught as that. I want to say don't teach it. I don't say there's nothing... Like, for example... Uh, we don't historicise it at all, we, do we? we don't set it in any historical context. These things are entirely, <laughs> these ideas about enlightenment ideas are entirely dehistoricised. So we don't sort of understand the way in which they're serving a particular purpose or political no, purpose. Not really. or, and, and if you, and one, so one of the big things that we're taught is that, you know, the end of religious reason and science, that's kind of the dawn of progress, et cetera, et cetera. But what you tend to find, and particularly on the issue of race, what you find is, you had arguments that said that Africans were inferior and whites were superior that were religious. And then when science came in, you just had arguments that said Africans are inferior and white people are superior, uh, but based on science. So there is actually, on that on that issue particularly, there is no progress. In fact, the Enlightenment science more generally makes that more severe, it codifies it, puts it on your body, says that you are actually are, we can prove through racial science that I am inferior to you. Right. And of course, science has the science has this sort of has the sort of imprimatur of of objectivity. Yeah, yeah. Which, exactly. which if I can if I can <coughs> if I can make racial science objective, then yeah. you, you've suddenly sort of, you've put you, you know you've you've somehow put that um, prejudice into the nature of reality. Yeah, I mean, and it really does create that reality because bef- around this similar so say, take something like slavery, which is abhorrent, and I think. People were realizing it was abhorrent. One of the reasons it carries on for so long, and then colonialism more generally justified, is because of science. Because there is the belief that actually this is a different human being. And you were having there were debates in Europe at the to- at the time about is this right, is it not right? And then you have the university that comes in and says, well, no, look, they're inferior, they're animals. We can treat them like this because why, why would you treat them differently? So, so how does so you're going through the university system? I just want to ask you personally how this works. So you're surrounded by. A culture, a history, uh, a political apparatus that um, is designed to make you feel inferior. But it's it's so all-pervasive. I suppose what I want to know is how do you find intellectual space beyond that to critique it? I mean, because it... Because presumably it must affect you too. I mean, it must affect the way you think. It's so all pervasive. Uh, yeah, and I think this is going back to my, my family, and not just family, but also if you look at community education. You know, one of the things that has been really prevalent has been things like we have Saturday schools, where which are organised by the um, black communities, kind of to just do the stuff that the schools won't do on the weekend. We have our own bookshops and libraries, and even book publishers. Did you so, do some of that stuff when you were um, a kid? I actually didn't go through Saturday school. My Dad was involved in starting one of the first Saturday, Saturday schools. School. Well, they call it Saturday school. Oh, so yeah. um, these are basically in the si- 60s, so late 60s. 
the parents realised that the kids were not getting this wonderful British education and that there was, I mean, severe marginalisation. So we just started doing our own maths, English tuition, black history tradition. Um, often on, they call it Saturday schools, often on a Saturday when people had time in people's front rooms, churches, schools. So there's been this big, kind. there's been a whole area of black um, community education, which I guess is where I've got my... That's how it kept me sane. Jeez, if I was just stuck in the UD, I'd, I would, if I hadn't found black psychology, I would have gone because I did not believe you could have a proper academic career within with the stuff that we had, what we were taught. It was completely alien to me. So having that space of community education, my bookshelf at home, and then black psychology, that's 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 what's got me to here. So one of the, the one of the things that you're critical of in your book is <laughs> liberalism. Yeah. which uh, is, I, I guess, also a product of the Enlightenment. Um, but talk to me about why liberalism has, has failed for, for, for black people, but for all of us, I guess. I mean, um, that's yeah, point. I mean, what, the, the basic tenets of liberalism are that we're moving towards something better, right? They were generally progressing, that what you need to have is access to the system and reform, uh, and reform of it. And you have like, a lot of black political movements, I'd say probably most black political movements are in that vein, uh, civil rights movement's the one we know know the most about. Uh, we had a civil rights movement in the UK as well. And if you look at those movements, they're relatively successful, right? Like, what do you want? You want voting rights. Uh, you want um, access to um, black... You want black people to get into the system. So you want, you've got a black president, you've got black MPs, you've got black police people, <laughs> police officers, I guess you call them. And, um, you know, you've got access and hopefully you can get reform. Uh, Britain has the meaning of the... 2010 Equalities Act is probably one of the best equality acts, certainly in Europe, if not the world. So you have legislation, lots of lots of legislation, but what you find is that the problems are still there, and they haven't really got any better on it. So is that because um, people are being inducted into a system, uh, even in a system which is of equal opportunities, but mm -hmm. nonetheless the system itself is endemically hostile to black people. Yeah, I mean, the system is based... So the book I'm writing... That's the minute, problem it's with liberalism. The, the, yeah, the problem is that we have a system which is based on racism. You cannot reform racism out of the system. It's not possible, because it is the system. That's the logic of it. And so any time you try to reform it, you'll just find that it just regenerates problems again and again and again. So the fact that I'm a black professor does not mean anything, really, other than to me. But... So why is it endemic? How, how, how is it... I mean, I understand, I understand that... Uh, the co I, can, I can understand you talk about the consequences of this. Mm -hmm. Would so you could look at you know the number of people who are employed in certain situations, uh, mm -hmm. certain positions, and so forth like that. But yeah. how is this? How does how does racism express itself within the system? How is it located within the system? Well, racism is literally at the base of the political economy of the West. If you think about what the West is, the West when the West starts, the West starts where 1492 that expansion into the Americas. And it's and it, and it's birthed in racism. What's the first thing that the Europeans do? They kill genocide about a hundred million um, natives, and then start to do slavery, and then colonialism. And then so you see that what makes the West is slavery, genocide, and colonialism, which are based on these principles of racism. Right now, in the liberal account, we can accept that and then say, "Oh well, we moved on. Things have changed." But actually, that's not true because if you look at the, we still have the basically same colonial relationships with those places. So look at Africa. It's not a coincidence that Africa is the poorest continent in the world and the West with the white people is the richest. And then in the middle, you've got this kind of racial... You actually have a racial hierarchy in the global political economy. So we shouldn't really be surprised on these things. And how does it perpetuate itself? I mean, given, yeah. it's, given it's sort of those origins, how does it keep going? So, it ha so it, in order for the West to be where it is, it has to keep going. It can't not, right? 
to not to to stop exploiting um, African resources would mean that the West collapsed. To stop who makes all our stuff now? It's, it's in Asia, right? Pay, oh, pay them pittance. They got no. It has to. This this is still just as much today as ever. Racism is still what governs our political system, and the idea that whiteness is the pinnacle, whiteness is the top. Now, for us here. That manifests itself a little bit differently because you could argue that, look, we're here now, we're part of it, we can have equal access to it. But once the logic of a system is racism, it treats everybody with right treats it we get treated with the same racism as well and you must you must get obama as the as the sort of i know but obama is the as the answer to all of this it can't be because of obama <laughs> yeah but look obama is a poster child for all of this right because yes you can have access you can have a black president you can have a black middle class <clears> but that doesn't change the situation it's not coincidental that it was black lives matter came into being under the black president trayvon martin was killed under a black president in fact not one indicator the only indicator that got better in eight years of Obama for black people, was the employment rate. So the employment rate went up a little bit for black people. Um, but then when you look at the income for that employment, that created... They're in terrible I mean, jobs. They're terrible jobs. Like working in KFC or whatever. Yeah, 50%, imagine this, the worst stat I've heard about America. 50% of all black people who are employed in New York City work in a fast food restaurant. That's, that's shocking. I mean, that's insane. That's right? shocking. So you have a job, but it doesn't pay. right? So you see that food stamps... But you've said, so, I mean, I, you like saying things that are sort of... You, you like going out with things that are a bit shocking. And I've heard you say, <laughs> Trump's better than Obama for black people. Yeah, for that reason. Because, <laughs> because the president, and this is not because I'm not pro-Trump at all. Trump's terrible. But my point is the presidency is against black people. It's always going to be against black people. And by having a black face on the presidency, it, it convinces people that uh, things are getting it's better. Like my mum, my mum, my black radical mum cried when he was, and I was like, why are you crying? It makes no sense. But because the symbol, we get carried away with the symbol. The symbol's worse. It does... It does real damage to our politics. We need to understand that this theory, this system for us is only a nightmare. So you're not a massive fan of, I mean, of the civil rights and Dr. King and all that sort of thing. That's not your... No. Yeah. So, talk, so you know, Dr. King has been sort of sainted mm -hmm. in our culture. So what's the case against Dr. King? Because... Um, yeah, sainted, I guess, is 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 the yeah, way right. in which he's 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 thought about. Yeah, but there's a reason why he's sainted, right? Because he represents this liberal tradition, which can't get you anywhere, right? And then so, for, partly he's sainted because he's got we've, so he, we've, he, there was it's not nowhere, but Dr. well, King. Yeah, okay, not get you anywhere. I mean, not get you to freedom. Maybe we'll get you somewhere. Okay, and that's not to disrespect King. Like King firmly believed in his politics um, and was quite successful in those politics. But it's just that whole tradition that doesn't it doesn't doesn't. It doesn't end anywhere than here. This is where it ends. So I'm a big Malcolm X um, fan. Longest time I've spoken on a podcast without mentioning Malcolm X, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, they, these are two people who are alive at the same time. Malcolm's actually a little bit older than King. They die at the, the same age. They're both 39 when they die. They're doing the similar things. You'd think they'd have lots of connections with each other, but they don't. And it's not because they didn't like each other personally. It's because their politics were just so fundamentally different. One was about how do you reform the system, and one Malcolm was saying... The system can't be reformed. Yeah, that's the problem with King. So let's. Come, I'm gonna, I want to talk about Malcolm X in a minute, but let's just let's talk let's talk about your Back to Black and mm -hmm. uh, and the the thesis. Will you give me the thesis of the book? The thesis is built around, it seems to me, something about reclaiming uh, a positive sense of black nationalism. Is that fair? Is yeah, that a fair way I guess, of looking at it? I guess. But, yeah. but there's lots of. Um, but you distinguish it very heavily from very negative forms of yeah. nationalism. So perhaps you'd rehearse a little bit of that for me. Um, yeah, so basically the simple argument is that, you know, we had, in the 60s, there were these... So there's two things the book tried to do. One is to say, well, actually, let's look at black politics. It's not one thing. So we start to lump together King, X, 
Pan-Africanism is a slightly one thing, which it really isn't. There's distinct traditions of black politics. And we had a black radical, black radicalism, not tradition, a black radicalism, which is all about liberation, which is about revolution, which had a platform to say, look, if we do these things, we can overturn this wicked system, uh, represented mostly by Malcolm X, best by Malcolm X, but not mostly. And the point I'm making is that over the last 50 years, we've gone away from that. We've all gone into this liberal, we can make it kind of, position and that's got us the, the american dream <laughs> the american dream or the british dream, whatever you want to call it we're all dreaming and so if we the reason the book's called back to black is if we go back to that revolutionary politics that revolutionary moment in around the late 60s and we have to literally turn around and go back and go on a different chart ch- a different course then we can actually have and what do they want what is the, what, what, what what is the ask there so i mean essentially there's two things i guess the f- one is based on the global black nation which is where we have black nationalism i i'm i'm I don't like using the term black nationalism just because black nationalism has been so misused and badly used historically. So there's a whole bit in the book about problems of the idea of black nationalism. But this idea of the global black nation, which is kind of revolutionary nationalism, which links everybody in the African diaspora and even the African continent into essentially a, a nation that acts together and organises together. And once you have that, you have the basis of political power to actually have a proper fundamental revolution um, which, can, which reclaims the African continent and overturns capitalism that was a really short version yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really and, short version. and that's distinguished from pan-africanism because it's not just based in it's not just about africa uh well pan-africanism was the hardest chapter of the book to write because i'd always learned that pan-africanism was the logic of black radicalism and that book that you read when you were yeah from uh, black power to pan-africanism and yeah. pan-africanism is the basically the idea that africa unites and actually the diaspora unites as well so that was going to be the last chapter and i was going to call the politics pan-africanism but then the history of Pan-Africanism, when I started delving into it, it just was, wasn't that. What you actually had, and still have, is a really narrow nationalist version where everybody looks after their, everybody prides their little nation state, nation states created by Europe, by the way. These little nation states, they hold on to their sovereignty and they just kind of want, it's not real unity, right? Because you want a sort of, you want something a bit like an Uma. Um, in, yeah, in Islam, like that. I mean, like that. For, is, is that is that correct? Yeah, it's very it's, it's very similar to that in, in this place. It's saying, look, as as black, this is the thing that forget national borders. Um, yes, you've got your ethnic identities and other identities which have come into this certainly, but what the glue that holds us together is our blackness, and that should that should be the thing that brings together the the diaspora. So the one thing I thought, I guess I'm I'm bound to say this, being a priest and so mm-hmm. forth. But the one thing uh, I thought I was a bit missing from the book. Um, that, that I would like to see more of was more about religion and the role okay. of religion because religion actually has a very interesting feed into this mm-hmm. and I mean I, I guess particularly about Malcolm X as yeah. well and so the idea that Malcolm X I mean Islam was you know very important yeah. to, to Malcolm X and yeah. he changed his name to Malik yeah. uh, Shabazz Malik Shabazz yeah. 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 And, and when he broke with Nation of mm-hmm. Islam he you know, went on the Hajj yeah. and uh, so things like the Hajj are a sort of model of, mm. uh, um, I mean, I, I mentioned the Ummah de- deliberately yeah. and so forth. <laughs> yeah. But th- there is all of that that goes on in someone like Malcolm X. But you're not, you, you're, uh, you don't really go into that. No, because Malcolm does it. I mean, Malcolm does it. So look, that, Islam is really important for Malcolm. And he says all the time it's really important. It becomes essentially 
devout after he leaves the nation of Islam. He becomes a devout Sunni Muslim. Uh, travels to Saudi Arabia. He's, he's building a mosque, uh, um, Muslim mosque incorporated. But he's he he have his own mouth. Says um, that's 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 my religious thing is a hundred percent different from this black political thing. That's a separate thing, and that's good for me. And I'm gonna keep doing that. But actually, when we come together as black people, he says, uh, leave your religion at home. Keep it between you and your God. Because if we start getting into it, this can have an argument, right? So the politics we're talking about doesn't exclude religion but it isn't based on religion so here's so i suppose here's the question why is that one level of identity um which blackness is a level of identity why is that the level of identity that trumps say if you are (laughs) if you're a muslim then you have this other level of identity Mm -hmm. um so in terms of those competing identities or uh, layered identities Mm -hmm. they might necessarily be competing why is it that you're particularly trumping uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's I guess prioritize and troll. Is it is it that or is it just saying this is this is what brings us together, right? And then you, it's not that other things aren't important, but those other things like you can't build this politics on religion because some people are Christian, some people are Muslim, some people hate Christianity and Islam equally. And so we're saying, look, it's not saying you have to get rid of those things. It's just saying that if we're going to come together, then we have to come together. This is the thing that we come together on. I mean, I could give you two reasons. One would be there's kind of the so external... it's tactical. I mean, it's well, partly tactical. I mean, partly so. So there's two here. Partly is look at the political economy. Anti-blackness is based into the political economy. And uh, we are all in the same boat as black people, whether you're a Muslim or Christian, whether you're in Gabon or whether you're in... Kingston, wherever you're here. So you could, I could make this argument rationally and just say, look, look at the way the political economy is. If we want freedom for us, we have to come together. But then there's another part of this, which I guess is sort of spiritual in a sense, where it's a choice. Look, I ain't saying you have to. Like, it's, you might hear this and go, that's crazy. Well, I don't want anything to do with that. But it's about saying, actually, that shared origin back to Africa, that shared history of that, that's, that should be meaningful. So the, the colour of our skin, the kink of our hair should tell us something about ourselves. And that's something you feel. And I can't explain it. So there's to a, spe- there is a sort of spe- kind of I mean, usually with with the sorts of movements you describe, there is a sort of spiritual accompaniment, yeah. you know, uh, that that goes with it. Some sort of, yeah. you know, some sense of, you know, messiah type figures, or because there was, I mean, all of that is like, you know, um, that's not absent in the Malcolm X tradition, no, no, is no, it? No, and, no. Uh, unfortunately, no. So like, yeah. well, that's interesting. You say unfortunately. So it's like because I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm trying to. Get a sort of secular Brummie like you, which I imagine you're a secular Brummie. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm presuming you're a secular yeah, Brummie. Yeah. So you, the, the, your heroes, they're not Brummies, but they're not they're secular they're Brummies either. Secular. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think, no, there's certainly some, I, I go, if you want to call it spiritual, um, I, don't believe, I don't believe in Christianity, Islam, it's not. I, I do generally believe, and I think this is what ties together a lot of um, different African traditions, is in that kind of ancestors and that your history for your ancestors and your ancestors are really important. And I think that is the spiritual level that connects it together, right? And our ancestors, are the same, they're the same, wherever I'm, just because I'm here, my ancestors trace back to that same line. And that's really important in, in inferring who I am. And I think that's what, when we say blackness on the more spiritual level, is what we're calling. So there's a brotherhood, sisterhood of blackness, which is... Yeah, which, uh, yeah, and I think that, and also when you, if you, one of the reasons why Africa has been so accommodating to like Islam and other religions, Christianity, is because you can keep that and have Islam and have Christianity. If you look at a lot of the way that African Christianity and Islam have become involved in African beliefs, it's, they've still kept that kind of ancestry and then they've added in Christianity and Islam too. And so I think that basis is really important. So, Revolutionary politics. Mm-hmm. You're one of the few people these days that talks about revolutionary politics in the public sphere, square, which is extraordinary. Um, you've been challenged quite a bit on the role of violence in mm-hmm. in uh, in revolutionary politics, yeah. and 
your answer, as I understand it, is like, actually, the system we have here is incredibly violent. Well, it's the um, most violent system that's ever existed. So, I mean, how are you going to criticise revolutionary and, politics of violence? And so, so, so violence <laughs> is justified in, in revolutionary politics? Um, cool. Yeah, violence, I mean, so the violence question is, is interesting because oftentimes radicalism gets defined by violence, which it is not. So, for example, um, you could have a violent act, which isn't, you could have a violent political act, which is not radical at all, right? In fact, yeah, the war in Iraq was a violent yeah, political act. It wasn't. It wasn't radical, right? So, and we just we conflate this. So, I'm always wary. Say, look, that radicalism isn't defined by violence, and that people like Malcolm or Fanon or you know who make this argument for against non-violence are making an argument against non-violence rather than for violence, which is a bit different. They're saying, look, non-violence doesn't make any sense. You have to defend yourself, and you have to be prepared to use violence because this is a really violent system. And also, right now, at this particular stage, violence is not what's needed in revolutionary politics. This is not this is not where we're at. Right now, we need to build um, the organisation and build the basis of the black nation before any violence is possible. But at some point, you have to be realistic. If you create a politics which can overturn Western capitalism, you're going to have to use violence. You're going to have no choice because there will be violence meeting against you. I mean, just, you. just to talk about the, whether violence is, ne- is absolutely necessary, this is the point where I'm beginning to sort of like, I begin to feel a bit, I'm departing from you at this point. So <laughs> okay. And so you're looking at people like Gandhi, mm-hmm. okay, and their experience of, uh, you know, the way in which they took on the system and colonialism and pressure and so forth, which was... Yeah. Um, now, am I fantasizing about the the, the, the sort of non-violent Gandhi and the importance of of non-violence in in, in uh, resisting British imperialism in India? No, and again, non- so if you take someone like Gandhi, that's an important level of resistance. Is it radical resistance? No, it isn't. Actually, you look at what's happened in India post; it's not not radical at all. So I think it's not. I'm not saying you can't get anything through non-violence. What I am saying is you can't get the end. You can't end capitalism. Through nonviolence, let's just be realistic about this. So, so the so I understand radicalism is about the root. That's yeah. that's that's what it means. And going back to the root, it's not the same as extremism. And you make yeah. that distinction very clearly in your book. And sometimes there are extremisms that are not radical, and there are there are there's radicalism that's not extreme, and so forth. So the two things are very different. But what is the root here? So what are you go, what what are we going back to in terms of the word radical? Mm-hmm. Returning to the root, what is the root here? Is the root a sort of Brotherhood and sisterhood of blackness is the root. A uh, uh, this pan Africanism. What's the, what's the root that that nurtures this? Fun, I mean, fun, for black radicalism, it is. I guess it's Africa is important. So Africa as as the root. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here, right? Um, and that that the nation, the brotherhood of that is really important. And then fundamentally, the end goal politics of black radicalism. We're not in the end goal yet, but the end goal is uh, the African Revolution. The Afri- Africa is the home. Africa is the root. And if you if you could have this revolution, imagine imagine if you could basically kick out the West and China from Africa. Africa is the richest continent in the planet. It has the resources to create an entirely independent and different economic system. In fact, nowhere else could do this, right? But Africa could do this. And that's what revolution looks like. That's that's the route, if you like. In the long term, not right there, but in the long term. How, how, how far away is this from the, from the um, gentleman that danced with your mum? Um, <laughs> how, how far, how, how far <laughs> this, is this away from Mugabe? It's a long way from Mugabe. Is Mugabe, it? I mean, this is one of the things, because a lot of the radical, real radical leaders were killed, uh, we kind of left with these false prophets of radicalism, and, and Mugabe is one of the false prophets. I remember my dad telling me this story. Uh, Mugabe was never seen as radical in the 70s, in the revolutionary period. In the, he really wasn't. And there was a guy, Herman Chitepo, was one of the re- really revolutionary leaders and was actually in Handsworth, um in the 70s, but then was assassinated. 
two weeks after he was in Hansworth. And what they did was they killed off the revolutionary leaders. It's possible that Mugabe was involved. Everybody thought Mugabe was involved with this at the time. And then Mugabe was kind of the, the, the person who took on... It kind of seemed like he was being against colonialism, but really he wasn't. He never was at no point. And so all this saber-rattling he did later on with the white farmers, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, that was just the populism. He's a populist. It's not radical. So it's very, very different to uh, Mugabe. Mugabe. If Mugabe was serious, Mugabe would have nationalised industry in Zimbabwe 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Is there a sort of, in terms of African leaders today, is there a... Is there, um, is there one in which you sort of place some hope and... Where are you? Where are your um, Messiah figures coming from? <laughs> so I think we need to avoid Messiah figures. I think that's the key. Even okay, though okay. I always so talk about I, Malcolm, even okay. though I always do it, Malcolm X. One of the things I was saying the other day, Malcolm, we are Malcolm's got this position largely because he died. Right? People don't die; they tend to sell out <laughs> eventually. So we should avoid Messiah figures. Okay. So, but, okay. But, 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 but so, so, nonetheless, political leaders who are inspiring political leaders in Africa. I mean, it does seem to, it, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? Well, yeah, because the political class is not a revolutionary class, generally. I mean, it really isn't. I think the EFF, Economic Freedom, um, is it Economic Freedom Foundation, EFF in South Africa, um, have the have some really good policies around um, take it like nationalising, et cetera, et cetera. Julius Malema is often somebody that comes up, but it's problematic. I mean, in many ways, it's problematic. It has this kind of big man of Africa, really patriarchal. I'm not 100% convinced, but the, the platform of the EFF, at least, in South Africa is, is hopeful. And I think you've always had this kind of Pan-African platform in many parts of Africa, but maybe it hasn't come to fruition yet. There's, there is a bit of an irony, isn't there? I mean, I think you acknowledge this, but there's a bit of an irony being a sort of Western-based academic. Mm. In fact, you know, from the heart of empire. You know, you, you work in the heart of the beast, Kahande. Yeah, I do. And, uh, and yet preaching revolution, <laughs> preaching revolution uh, to a sort of from the heart of the beast... Yeah. Um, and that's sort of, you know, when there's actually, you know, lots of people in Africa who wouldn't, <laughs> who would go, well, yeah, no, I know, mean, definitely. I think that that is true. That is a hundred percent true. But I think lot, part of the problem with how we understand Africa is the voices we're hearing from Africa aren't the grassroots of Africa. I mean, when, when anybody who's got enough money to come here to be educated here um, in the political class in Africa, I mean, let's be honest, that's not. That's not the people in the streets and the grassroots. And my experience has always been, I've never been to Africa lots and lots of times. When I have been, um, you talk to just people, they're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That sounds, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Because they aren't there, the people, the people who really catch that hell aren't really here. It's not, not really They're here not in this country. No. That's it, no. They are in South Africa. That's South Africa in particular. They're in Ghana. They're people who are having to flee, economic refugees fleeing from West Africa, crossing the Sahara Desert. Going through Libya, which is like the most dangerous place for black people probably today, and then getting on boats to cross the Mediterranean. Those are the people who understand it, but we don't hear those voices. We're hearing a particular voice out of Africa. Ghana's often held up as a, a, a sort of one of the sort of economic um, um, sort of miracles of, of yeah. uh, but it's. Uh, yeah, some I, I know doing, Ghana a yeah. bit, and it's, it's not like that, is no, it? No, there's huge inequalities of wealth where some people are doing well and some <clears> people are doing terribly. And Nigeria is the same. Some people are doing really, really, really well, better than people in the West. But the majority of people aren't. So that American dream also has uh, that that is in, that, that is really about capitalism, about some people getting the sort of golden ticket, and some people that is that has a powerful and shaping effect in Africa as well. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah, if you look at, I was in Nigeria July, 
And, you know, everything was Nigeria, 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 Nigerian politics. It's like, this is going to have some, they got elections this year. And they think yeah. that's going to save you, really? I mean, you do not know about Nigerian politics. And I was there, I said, well, actually, just hang on a second. Let's think about what makes Nigeria. Who, who drew the borders? Why, why, is this, why is this even a country? And within five minutes, they were all like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that don't make any, this makes no sense. But that, that nation state thing is so strong in places like Nigeria, Ghana, et cetera. And that is the biggest barrier. Actually, Africa just worked together. Economically, I mean, Ghana seems to, seems to be massively exploited for its uh, for its resources. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a canon of a cathedral mm. in on the border of uh, Ghana and the Ivory Coast, okay. and uh, that whole area, <coughs> um, which is where sort of chocolate is. I mean, it's deforested. Yeah. It's like um, my cathedral is on the top of a hill, and you look from there, and it's just. Yeah a wasteland of exploitation of the trees being knocked down and so forth. I don't think people realise quite how uh, that exploitation is. You know, we, we, we think of exploitation as something that's yeah. that's happened, but it's it's something that continues. Yeah, I, mean, I was in Cabri World in Birmingham. So this is why everybody loves Cabri World because of chocolate and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They have this um, tour, like a museum tour where you go through and it shows you the Spanish finding chocolate from the Aztecs, mentions they killed Montezuma, kind of ignores genocide, but, you know, I guess it's a museum for kids, so I suppose they don't want to go into details. Skips over slavery completely, like sugar wasn't important. And gets to this moment where you have the Cabris and they're making, I don't know if you heard of Bourneville. In, yes, in, yes, yes, of course. It's kind of like, yeah, it's Quakers. And yeah, Quaker land. It was, they had really great rights for workers in, in Britain and they're all championing these workers in Britain. Completely ignored the fact that the cocoa workers in Ghana were basically like slaves at that time. Um, but that was totally ignored. And then it comes into the future and we're told the process of, they take the um, the cocoa from Ghana. They take it to uh, a processing plant up north, and then it comes down to Britain and down to Birmingham, and then they make the chocolate, etc., etc., etc. And they're telling the story like, "Oh, yeah, this is great. Look how great cabbage. We're the good guys." <laughs> yeah, but really, I mean, just imagine that Ghana's product, cocoa, is literally extracted for nothing, and then Cadbury's making four billion. I, I've, um, in fact, one of the most difficult experiences, and in fact, uh, religiously most difficult experience I've ever had, is on the Gold, what was called the Gold Coast. Mm. Uh, and there's forts uh, with slave pits yeah. in Ghana, um, just, I don't know, 50 miles north of Accra, whatever it is. And, uh, and there's one um, which it has a sort of dungeon underneath. Yeah. And the dungeon is sort of, the floor is layered with people's blood and death. Yeah. And, and above it, there's a fucking chapel. Really? Okay. Oh, there's a chapel wow. where people used to pray... <laughs> And sing. And I had this extraordinary sense of, well, they used it as a chapel. I think it was a room they used it as a chapel. And this extraordinary sense of people underneath, slaves underneath, hearing white people above oh, yeah. singing hymns. Wow. wow. Now, there couldn't actually be a more, uh, there couldn't be a more awful sense of what constitutes, yeah. know, you know, the... I mean, it's a condemn condemnation yeah. of Christianity worse than anything else I've ever I've ever <laughs> no. seen. But that, but that, and all that, it goes back to that discussion of the Enlightenment, where they weren't seen to be human beings, so it wasn't problematic because they weren't really human. So you can treat Africans in that way, and unfortunately, that is, and that's a really extreme, like quite localized example. But that's essentially what we have, and we celebrate a, sh a place like Cabris, where Ghana's terrible, poor conditions, and basically stealing Ghana's product. They're really living in poverty. And then we celebrate and... and, and we love Cabris and Paul, but these are, the, these are supposed to be the good guys. I mean, exactly. the Quakers, I mean, these yeah. are the people that held up as models of... Um... Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. Social democracy in Britain is based on that, right? The wealth of empire is what gives us NHS, social democracy, all this stuff. And Cabris is the perfect example of it. It can't be... 
It can't be fixed, though, can it? I mean, you can't undo it. I mean, there can't be reparations are not possible to pay. I mean, they bankrupt. Well, I mean, yeah. the, 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 no system would cope with anything that would try and. Re, re, well, no, yeah, that's that's the that's repair the, it. Yeah, that's why you. That's why look, reparations should happen, and there's no doubt about it. But they can't happen because the well, the money we're talking about is impossible. It would actually destroy Western the Western economy, which tells you that you can fix it. With revolution, right? That's what I'm saying. There's always a way. So would that be one of the aims of revolution, to 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 um, uh, to rebalance and pay off, as it were, the sort of exploitation that's happened of of, of African resources? Yeah, uh, you can't. Like I say you, you can't really. What do does that you mean? Just need something new, and I think that's why if you had this Pan African, the Pan African Revolution, if you like, that organises planned economy, kicks out the Western influences, etc. That's what you have to do. That's the only solution for it. Well, not the only, there's other solutions, but that is definitely one of them. So. You're a very sort of quietly spoken, mild-mannered, gentle revolutionary, Kinder. <laughs> <Would you laughs> no, 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 but I mean, you know, you're talking, we're t- we're, no, we're talking about, we talk about violence and non-violence. Yeah. We talk about, this is like, we, we, you know, we, we sit and have a gentle conversation here, but this is, this is, yeah. we're talking about some of the sort of, you know, what's being proposed by you yeah. is actually, um, is turning the world upside down in such an extraordinary way that, of course, there would be, you know, that there would be extraordinary violence as a consequence of yeah. it, and so forth. Are you sanguine about that? Because you know it's never going to happen. <laughs> is it? Is it sort of? Is it slightly cheap talk because it's never going to happen? Or do you somehow? Do you sometimes think actually yeah. this could happen, and I'd be on the, you know, I'd be on the barricades? Yeah, no, because I, look, this three million a, ch- a child dies every ten seconds because they have no food. They can't get access to food. A child every ten seconds. So this every there is a massacre, there is a genocide every single day because of this system. There's not more people that are going to die or less. More, less people will die after the revolution than will die during the revolution. So I, I guess that's why I'm a bit like, for me, it's not about violence or non-violence. It's about it, does this make sense? And this will probably mean violence at some point. But we already live in a condition where is there kids a just analysis that you have with with uh, against the capital? Would your would your analysis against capitalism be? Inspired by Marxism, informed by Marxism. Uh... I mean, Marxism's there, but Marxism is still fundamentally a white, <laughs> white idea. Like, what Marxism just can't deal with, like, race is the basis of the political economy for me, not class. In fact, class divisions are produced off the back of race in many ways, right? Social democracy, the working class jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I just don't think Marxism can deal with that. I think it's, it's good in many ways, but that's the one limitation. If you go to um... Walter Ben Michaels, The Trouble with Diversity. I don't know if you've ever oh, come across it, but it's a very interesting book. And he does analysis of um, uh, top universities in the US, Harvard and so forth, and looks at all the classes. And they say they have diversity in a whole range of areas. They have good racial diversity. This is what he's saying. They have good LGBT diversity. They have good all sorts. This is what he's mm-hmm. saying. But in terms of class... Mm-hmm. Wealth is the one diversity that they never, that, mm. that actually is, that's the one that's never there. You don't get poor people. You get a very diverse selection yeah. of rich people and so forth. <laughs> yeah. Now, that struck me as, 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 in terms of an analysis, that class really was a sort of, you know, it is the driving, is well, the driving um, narrative. I mean, I'd always be wary of diversity anyway, because I, I, I think diversity is not what we're aiming to get. So just because you have lots of black people doesn't make it, any less racist. It's talking about a system. If you had less, more poor people in universities, it'd still be the same, right? Like it wouldn't change what the university is. I mean, I think the class, look, obviously, if you have a system, capitalism is based on people having money and people not having money. So if you don't have money, you're going to be doing badly. That's the whole nature of the system. Um, but when we're talking about how do we overturn that, I mean, you could say, look, everybody who's poor and everybody who's working class should come together. 
it might make sense. But the biggest problem with that, um, on if you look at an anal analytical point, the whole idea that there's a workers and not workers, that's, not, that's nonsensical. I mean, it really is nonsensical. The wor working class is here, and they're not all white now. Um, the majority of the working class, actually a big chunk of the working class is now black and brown here, are in such a complete different income bracket to the poorest of poorest of people. It is nonsensical to say that they're, that they're, they're aligned in the same way. That's what Marxism is telling you, right? That you're, all your interests are aligned. But that's not true because we have empire. And empire has always been the people in Asia and Africa, etc., are at the bottom and they're super exploited so that you can be a little bit exploited. And I think if you find that what social democracy often is about is about how do we share the spoils of wealth from empire better, not how do we fix the problems for everybody in the, in the world. That's what Corbynism is. I like Corbyn, but that's what Corbynism is. So, I mean, one of the, the things that's, that's uh, you know, people will be, will be shocked Maybe people be shocked by uh, what you're talking about. Is that actually when you talk about empire and colonialism, you're talking about the present. Yeah, yeah, yes, you're, not, you're, not talking, no. you're not talking about something that ended with Wilberforce and, no, and all, no. <laughs> or, or um, you know, or us, you know, coming out of at the beginning of the 20th century, all that sort of thing. You're no, talking about now, aren't it's you? It's like today, like Britain, Jamaica just signed another deal with the IMF, like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. The way that we have all these these loans and the way that we structure different people's economies, the, the trade imbalances between places, the way that we just suck resources out of, the, of Africa and places like that, the fact that all of our stuff is made in by poor people in India and China. This is the, that's, the, that's the message you need to get across, that this imperialism is one system which had different faces. First it was genocide, then it was slavery, then it was colonialism, and now it's neocolonialism. But it's not changed, it's not ended. This is just one continuous thing. And the root of that is racism. And the only way to get rid of it is to overturn the system i'm i'm uh i'm surprised i was surprised when i read your book um and that you wanted to as it were clean up the uh, the word nationalism okay uh, which is a word that has become so encrusted with uh <laughs> complexity yes. especially now during brexit which i know oh, God, yeah. which i know you're <laughs> you're not a great fan of because uh, you said something about it on the moral race the other day you know yeah <laughs> <it's true. laughs> But but you want you want to clean this word up, and presumably it's a non-treaty of Westphalia type of nationalism that you're yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, what, I did call it black radicalism for a reason, rather than nationalism, because just nationalism is just problematic in many ways. But it, it is very much a non-nation-state nationalism. We talk about the global black nation. It is a, which like you said, like the Uma, like that runs across that doesn't take into account national borders. So it's a different thing. And I think you've had those have been around within Pan-Africanism, within versions of Black Radicalism, Black Panthers, have had those kind of ideas in the past. And those who think that the nation-state itself mm. uh, can be some bulwark against uh, international capitalism and the way in which you know markets flow, you think that's naive? <laughs> we don't realise we can't leave the EU. Someone knows like you. Oh, I know, I mean, is I, it possible? I... <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that make you a Brexiter? <laughs> no, no. Oh, well, I mean, you know, the idea that we can't leave is like part of the sort of like you know that's we we, we can't leave because hey. we can't leave because the, uh, markets need to be open and uh, money needs to flow and yeah, isn't that the whole point about the remain that it's uh, that it, it's it's in hoc to a particular view of, <laughs> of free market no, capitalism. That's the reality, though. That's the point. Is that's the West. The West has always been like that. Like, so it would be like that, even yeah, even if based way. on the nation state. Yeah, if you leave, if we actually manage to leave Europe completely, you just end up in America. I'd like be America's little brother, which would be terrible. <laughs> you weren't going to say that, were you? Yeah, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> you thought I can't say on the radio. I've already sworn on the radio today, and I'm really sorry. So I have to apologise for swearing earlier. Um, so, um, but yeah, so that's, that's the point. Just the idea that you could have this Britain as a... But Britain has never, ever, 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 ever been prosperous and been a little island by itself. Like Britain becomes great in the world because it has what? Empire, which is what? Globalism. The idea we, we, that, cut, we, we cut, we we punch <laughs> above our weight and all those sorts of things. They're the lang- it's the language of empire, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and that's that has always the West is a hundred percent has always been a global system. And this nation state thing is a way to control people, not just black people, control lots of people into 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 not revolting, into thinking that into closing your eyes views around this, these little islands when it's never been a better. I mean, I I um one of the things about uh, Brexit for me is that I spent. I have. I mean, I'm a. My church is black majority church, okay. and uh, I spent quite a lot of my time before the vote, before Brexit became this big thing, um, in immigration courts, standing yeah. with people, those people whose immigration status is uncertain or whatever yeah. they call it, and so forth. And I, I, did, I did a lot of that, and um, and then suddenly when it comes to when it comes to the 2016, when you don't get when freedom of movement for roughly speaking, white people, <laughs> yeah, is threatened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what bothers me about about the the, the European Union is it yeah. seems to be a club yeah. for white people, in, broadly speaking, white people, to enjoy freedom of movement yeah. and actually to keep out black people. Yeah, yeah no, that, don't That's don't so, yeah. you know, that enrages me. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's the thing about it. There's, a, there's pre the referendum, there was a lot of black British people were like, we're not this all EU thing, this whole freedom of movement thing. We're not a big fan of this. If you actually look at it, and if you look at what's happened since what the 62 Commonwealth Immigration Act, Britain has been making it harder and harder and harder for black and brown people to move into this country. And then you have a period where you just make it really easy for white Europeans yeah. to move into this country. So they did create a lot of quite reasonable resentment where you say, well, actually, this is clearly not fit. I would not doubt in any way that one of the reasons they expanded into Eastern Europe and allowed this is because the white population of Europe is declining and they wanted to keep Europe white. Like this, I would not be surprised. So I'm 100% look, this is not a policy. This is a clearly example of Britain's racist and Europe's racist um, um, policy. So do you think Remain has a sort of racist undercurrent to it in terms of keeping Europe a sort of fortress Europe, keeping Europe white type. Yeah, of thing. and I think and I think this is if if you wanted to win over the white working class vote, someone just need to explain to people that was the plan. And I think we'd have, have people would have voted Remain. If you think everybody would have voted Remain, right? This that's the irony of all these things. We're actually having this debate about white people moving into into Britain, which has been also not new. This has happened historically and historically. I can't believe you're not over the Brexiter then. <laughs> I'm, sounding like, I'm sounding like a Brexiter, but <laughs> because the alternative, look, Europe's racist. No doubt about it. The alternative is just worse. Like the, alter- the the fact of the matter is that you if we are in a global economic system. You need to have access to Europe. Without you seeing, if we actually left in the way that it's been said, then it'd be devastating for the economy. And when the the British economy dies, who gets it worse? Black people. So just pragmatically, Remain is the only real option, even though it's not great. But I'm all for revolution. So hopefully we won't, we won't be having need to have this conversation <laughs> in fifty years. <laughs> Kendi, well, it's a, a, a joy to talk to you, and uh, I, I think there's a sort of mismatch between the sort of um, the bonhomie of our conversation <laughs> and actually the sorts of things that we're talking about, which are people who are starving in the world, yeah. uh, um, children who are dying, and the need for a different sort of politics, which is uh, deeply serious. Thank you, mate, for no coming in and talking. Thanks a lot. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Thank you.